I think it's painfully obvious to many of us that uh, Christianity is on the decline in America. Uh, we see evidence of this all around us. Uh, just turning on the news, it's painfully obvious uh, that Christianity's influence in this country is waning. And the Barna Group did a poll uh, from 2011 to 2016 about the percentage of Americans who believe the Bible to be a holy book. Not necessarily inerrant, but just a holy book. That percentage dropped from 86 to 80% of the population in just those five or six years. And the percentage of Americans who believe the Bible to actually be inerrant dropped from a, a whopping from 48% all the way down to 33%. And uh, we, we would argue that the loss of biblical authority is really contributing to the, the, the decline of Christianity in America. And it's easy to say that, but why is there this perception that Scripture has lost its authority? Well, without putting too fine a point on it, a big part of the problem is this issue of evolution. And contrary to what some will tell you, this issue is, it's, it's, this is not a side issue. This is a really important issue. And I want to give you seven reasons this evening every Christian ought to take Genesis literally. Uh, the first is society. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's obvious that uh, Christianity's influence in this country is waning. Uh, we've seen not that long ago, the United States Supreme Court legalized homosexual marriage. Uh, the Supreme Court as, and other lower courts routinely strike down even modest regulations on abortion clinics. Uh, we've seen uh, corruption in this country. Uh, I know there's corruption's always been there, but it seems like it's more out in the open than it used to be. And we have out-of-control violence. And obviously, we're concerned about these issues, and when we object to some of these things, especially things like abortion and homosexuality, the question we get is, who are you to impose your morality on us? Um, that's the question we're often asked, and, and people want to make their own rules, but why do they feel free to make their own rules? Well, it's because of evolution, because if evolution is true... We don't have anyone to whom we're going to have to give an account. You see, if God made us, then he owns us, he sets the rules, and he has a right to hold us accountable for not following those rules. But if we really are just the result of a cosmic accident, if we're just rearranged chemicals, then there's, there's no reason, uh, there's no one to, we, to whom we'd have to give an account. And really, there's no real basis for morality. Basically, morality is what the majority says it is. And that reminds you of a verse in Judges where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And usually when they did that, the results weren't pretty. And we're seeing that today. We're seeing that in this country where people are doing what is right in their own eyes rather than what Scripture says. And you see, the, 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 create, the fact that God is our creator, that's the foundation for a biblical morality. But what we're seeing is that biblical morality is being pushed aside and it's being replaced. It's actually crumbling because there's another worldview that's based on evolution that says uh, we, there is no God to whom we have to give an account. 
And so we have an alternate morality. We have an alternate worldview. And that's why we're seeing things that once were, uh, at just, you couldn't imagine happening. We're seeing these things happen in our society today. And so basically we have a battle, a war going between these two different worldviews. And uh, you've got this, uh, you have a, an evolutionary worldview where basically man decides truth because there's no one to whom we have to give an account. Basically, morality is whatever the majority says it is. But then you've got a creation worldview where God's word is truth, and that's the basis for true, absolute morality. And, you know, if you look at this little cartoon, uh, you can see that the Christians uh, are, seem to be outnumbered. Uh, one of them is, is fighting uh, the symptoms of the problem, okay, which is good. We should be fighting some of these symptoms, things like pornography, abortion, things like that. But look what the other side is doing. The other side, they're not wasting time attacking our castle or our, our skyscrapers. They're attacking the foundation because they know that if they destroy the foundation, the whole thing collapses, and so, in a way, the world is shrewder than Christians uh, because they recognize what the root issue is. And people are logical. People realize, look, if the Bible is wrong about origins, why should you obey its commands? So that first reason is society. If you want to have a biblical morality, you've got to base it on Genesis. Uh, the second reason is that the source of pretty much all major Christian doctrines come from Genesis. Uh, why is it that marriage is between one man and one woman? That is in Genesis chapter 3 verse 24. Uh, why is it uh, that we wear clothing? Okay, uh, why, you know, that's in Genesis 3.21. Uh, why is it wrong to murder a human being? The theological rationale for that is given in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. Because we're made in God's image. Why does sin require a blood sacrifice? That's also in the third chapter of Genesis. So you have these sources of these doctrines are coming from Genesis. And so if you don't take Genesis seriously, what is the basis for those doctrines? A third reason has to do with the style of Genesis. And contrary to what people will tell you, Genesis is not poetry. Now, there are poetic sections in Genesis, but it's actually a specific kind of literature called historical narrative. And one of the reasons we know it's a historical narrative is because there are all these historical details in it, including genealogies. Now, some people might say, you know, if this is poetry, as some people say, it's not very good poetry, right? Because it puts you to sleep. But this is very important. All scripture is God-breathed, Right? And, and is useful uh, for, for all these all instruction and for helping us to know that this is, a, this is real history. This is one of the ways we know that the Bible is meant to be understood as history because it has these genealogies. It has historical details. Now, many theologians will tell you that uh, you, the, the idea of millions of years is compatible with Scripture. It doesn't necessarily contradict Scripture. But let's be honest. They didn't get that idea from the Bible itself. Okay, They're getting that from secular scientists who are telling them that the earth is millions of years old. And so the theologians kind of feel like they just have to sort of accept that and add that to the Bible. Yet in the previous talk, Randy showed how 
uh, a lot of what we've been taught is just flat out wrong. There's a better way of looking at those rocks and fossils. You know, the, the, the scientist says, trust me, I know what he's talking, I know what I'm talking about. Well, no, he really doesn't. <laughs> okay. And where would you fit the millions of years? People have come up with all kinds of ingenious schemes to try to shoehorn millions of years into Genesis, but none of them are very convincing. Uh, you've got the old gap theory that says, oh, there's a gap of millions of years between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Uh, people will try to tell you that the days are long periods of time. Uh, some people might even try to fit the time between Adam and Abraham. Um, but none of those really are very convincing. In fact, they all falter on Exodus 20:11, that says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Uh, that verse makes it absolutely clear that the entirety of the physical universe, everything, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them was made in six days. Okay, and that six days is the basis for our six-day work week. You know, there's no astronomical basis for having a seven-day week. Uh, you know, it's six days of work and one day of rest. That comes, that is a commemoration of the fact that God created um, the universe in six days. Um, now, one thing you will find is that Christians who advocate non-literal approaches to Genesis who say that the days of Genesis and the creation week are long periods of time, or, or uh, that there was a gap uh, between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, they will almost always try to tell you that the flood was a local flood. It was not a true global flood that covered the entire world. And yet, if we look at just a short passage of Scripture, uh, Genesis chapter 7, verses 19 through 22, let's look at all the examples all the indicators in just this short passage that this is a true worldwide flood. It says, And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. Okay, so all the high hills were covered. And not only were the high hills covered, it's under the whole heaven. Okay, that doesn't sound like a local flood. If it's under the entire heaven, that's worldwide. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. So it's not just the high hills, the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. And by the way, note that the birds died too. If this was a local flood, why didn't the birds just fly away? So these, the text clearly says that the waters covered the high mountains. Well, what... What does a local flood that covers the high mountains look like? I mean, that just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, okay? That's, that just, yeah, that doesn't work. And then you've got this issue, did God break his promise? Remember, God promised that he would never again destroy the world with a flood. So if you say that the flood was a local flood, you are forced to say that God has broken his promise many times over. You know, Houston... Uh, which is not too far from where my parents live, got hit really hard with Hurricane Harvey. Now, that was a devastating local flood. Uh, the area where I grew up was hit hard by that. Okay, so if you say uh, that the, the Genesis flood was a local flood, God has broken his promise many times over. 
And, and I, just from my own personal experience, I, I think, if we're really honest with ourselves, I think non-Christians are not impressed when we Christians try to mix evolution in the Bible. I think most of them uh, consider that to be special pleading, and they think it's illogical. They don't think it's very convincing, and I think they're right. It's not very convincing, uh, and I think they're not very impressed with it when we try to do that. A fourth reason uh, that we ought to take Genesis literally is because of the issue of salvation. Uh, the gospel doesn't make sense unless you take Genesis literally. And let me remind you of what the Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 12. He said, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? The Bible talks about both earthly and heavenly things. The earthly things are things like science and history. The heavenly things, the existence of God, the existence of heaven, those are things uh, that we don't really see with our eyes. So if the Bible can't get right the earthly stuff, why on earth would we trust it with the heavenly stuff? Okay? Uh, the promise of a Savior, the first promise of a Savior appears in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, it's a very familiar passage to most of us where the Lord says, he's speaking to the serpent, and he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we know in retrospect this is clearly talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you as a Christian accept millions of years, you are casting doubt on the gospel message. And let me, let me give you an example of how this works. Uh, and let me say, I, I understand there's a lot of Christians out there who, who feel compelled to accept an old earth. They feel like the evidence for it is so strong. Uh, we're going to show you this weekend uh, that that's not really the case. But that's the perception that there's this, all this evidence for an old earth. They just have to accept it. But I think Christians who do that deep down are not very comfortable with that. Because they know deep down it's not good hermeneutics. You know, we, we would never apply this kind of interpretation to the rest of Scripture. But I think a lot of Christians kind of comfort themselves by saying, well, I know this is not really good exegesis. It's not good hermeneutics. But we'll, we'll, just, we'll just compromise a little bit with these first two chapters of Genesis. And then we'll interpret the Bible the right way, the, the, the rest of the Bible. We'll just leave it here and it's not going to spill over into the rest of the text. Well, I'm going to show you an example how it does spill over into the rest of the text. Okay, the acceptance of millions of years cast doubt on the gospel, it spills over. And let me remind you that Genesis chapter 3, the very same chapter of the Bible that tells us that God would send a Savior to bruise the serpent's head. That passage also tells us that thorns and thistles are punishments for sin. Uh, and we know where God said, Cursed is the ground for your sake, speaking to Adam. And toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for, for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. Well, guess what? We've got fossilized thorns. And the secular scientists claim those are tens of millions of years old, maybe Maybe hundreds of millions of years old. And modern humans, okay, are supposed to be very relatively young. Uh, Randy gave an age of 200,000 years. I saw an age of 500,000 years. I guess I may be getting that from an older source. But in any case, 
They're saying that modern quote-unquote humans are relatively young. So here's the problem. How can thorns and thistles be punishment for man's sin if those thorns and thistles were already here millions of years before people appeared on the planet? You see what happens? If you accept the millions of years, you have to assume that Genesis 3 is, is wrong about thorns and thistles. And if it's wrong about thorns and thistles, guess what? Maybe it's wrong about the seed of the woman. So these ideas, these evolutionary ideas, they don't stay confined to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. They start spilling over into the rest of the text. And that's why denominations that will take these non-literal approaches to Genesis, they ultimately end up disbelieving pretty much the entire Bible. It's the logical outcome of an acceptance of these, these evolutionary and old earth ideas. So this, the, the issue of salvation is tightly bound up in how we understand uh, Genesis. Remember that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's making the argument for the resurrection and he calls the Lord Jesus Christ the last Adam. And he's comparing and contrasting the first Adam with the last Adam. His argument for the resurrection assumes the reality of the first Adam. So both the first Adam and the last Adam are necessary to the gospel message. And yet, there are evangelical Christians out there who are openly toying with the idea that Adam was not a real person. And there's quite a few of them. And as appalled as I am by that, I'm not really surprised because once you accept evolution, once you accept an old earth, that's where it's going to take you. Let me show you another example of how this, this acceptance of evolutionary ideas ultimately corrodes your confidence in the entire Bible. In one of the genealogies of the Lord Jesus, and I believe it's the one in Luke, that genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Okay, well, what if Adam wasn't a real person? At what point does that genealogy cease being a myth and start actually becoming history? So now, it's not just Genesis chapter 3. Now we're looking at the Gospels themselves. The Gospel themselves are being undermined by this acceptance of millions of years. So look, if the Bible's wrong about Genesis, why would, be, why would we have any confidence in anything else it says? And by the way, um, the issue of the flood is really, really important. And a lot of Christians will, they, like I said earlier, they will try to tell you it was a local flood, uh, that we shouldn't get too worked up over this. But let me, let me add, point something out that you may not have considered. Why should your unbelieving friends and family repent of their sins and believe the gospel to flee the wrath to come if the most spectacular example of God's wrath the world has yet to see, the Genesis flood, didn't really happen. Or it really wasn't as bad as the, the Bible says it was. You see the problem? Why should they flee the coming wrath if the wrath that was described in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 wasn't really that big a deal? Remember, we can't see hell, okay? Mercifully, God has hidden that from our eyes. So why should the people around us, why should they believe this warning that God is going to judge the world in the, in the future? That he's going to, he's going to uh, 
hold us accountable? Well, because he's already done it. And the flood is the evidence. Those rocks and fossils are the evidence that God, he, you've got to take him seriously when he says he's going to punish the world. He's already done it once before, and he's going to do it again, not with water, but with fire. Again, remember what the Lord Jesus said. If I have spoken to you of earthly, earthly things and you believe not, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Also, another reason, the fifth reason, is this issue of sin and death. Because the way you understand origins is going to affect the way you look at death. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says point blank, he says, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So that verse clearly teaches that death entered the world because of man's sin. Now, there are Christians out there who will tell you this was only human death. Because they accept the idea that the fossils are millions of years old, they will say there was animal death before the fall. But is this consistent with God's character? Is this consistent with what we know about him revealed in Scripture? If you take Genesis non-literally, if you accept the millions of years and this claim that these fossils are the remains of creatures that lived millions and millions of years ago, you have to accept the idea that there was death and suffering in the world long before Adam sinned. And yet we're told in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and it was very good. That doesn't sound consistent with this idea of death and suffering being in the world. And this cartoon sort of illustrates the point. Uh, Adam and Eve are talking about how wonderful it is, that the world that God has made. It's very good, just like he said. But if you accept the millions of years, guess what? They're standing on this giant graveyard. Okay, Because there's been death and suffering going on for millions of years before they've done anything wrong. Again, this is not consistent with what we, we see in Scripture. Okay, these animal fossils, not, not only are we talking about death, we're talking about suffering. Uh, some of these dinosaur bones have tooth marks in them. Okay, uh, some of them show evidence of cancer. Okay, if this, if, this, if this is good, what does that say about God's character? But the Bible gives us an explanation for this. We read in Romans chapter 8, that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And we're told that that was imposed on it. So if the original creation was very good and now it's groaning, the, the obvious answer is that this groaning was imposed on it at Adam's fall. And that death and suffering entered the world when Adam sinned. So you've got two radically different views of death. Okay, the way an evolutionist looks at death is radically different from the way a Christian looks at death. Steve Jobs, before he died, said that death was probably the very best invention of life. And he capitalized life. He was personifying it. He said it is life's change agent. It cleans out the old to make way for the new. So in that view, evolution is driven by death. Death is a good thing. Because it ultimately led to us. We are here as the result of the deaths of billions of lesser fit organisms. But according to the Bible, death is an enemy. It's the last enemy that will be defeated. So the way you, the way you understand Genesis affects the way you look at death and the issue of sin. The sixth reason 
that we ought to take Genesis literally is because of the signs. And you'll notice I put this far down on the list because um, we need to let Scripture be the basis for our thinking. Most, most of everything I'm going to tell you in this, art, in this talk is based on Scripture. But I'm going to also briefly talk about the science just a little bit. Uh, we're saying, as Dr. Galuza said earlier, there is a better way to understand the data. There's a better way to interpret the data. These rocks and fossils are not a record of millions of years of evolution, but they're from the flood. Okay, they are from the Genesis flood. Now, if you say that, your typical college professor, you know what he's going to say if you tell him that the rocks and fossils are from the flood? He's going to say, oh, there's no evidence for a global flood. That's what he's going to say. That's what he's going to say. Okay? But don't forget that the Apostle Peter told us that in the last days, scoffers would come, uh, walking after their own lust. And if you read this passage, there are three things that these scoffers deny. The first, in verse 5, is that God created the universe. In verse four, uh, 6, they deny that God uh, destroyed the world with a global flood in the days of Noah. Actually, uh, and then verse 4, they deny that the Lord Jesus is coming again. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Okay. That's exactly what people like Richard Dawkins and the late Stephen Hawking and uh, others have said. That's what they say. Those, that is the, the, those are the claims of these scoffers that the Bible tells us about. And, and, and consider this. Um, is it really surprising that they would try to say there's no evidence for a flood? Remember, if the flood really happened, that means God judges sin. And if I'm walking after my own lust, the last thing I want to admit is that God judges sin. Because if he really did judge the world in the days of Noah, guess what? The Bible says he's going to do it again, and I'm in trouble. If I'm walking after my own lust, and I am refusing to repent of my sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm in trouble. So is it really surprising that these scoffers would try to argue that there's no evidence for a flood? I mean, are they going to really come out and say, yeah, I know there's this overwhelming evidence for the flood of Noah, but I love my sin too much, so I'm just going to keep on doing it. And of course not. Of course they're going to try to come up with some pseudo-intellectual rationale for rejecting uh, the account of the flood. But as we're going to see in this a conference here this, this weekend, Lord willing, we're going to show you many examples of how we can make way better sense of the data by believing the scriptures. Okay, When the science is done right, it confirms creation, not evolution. Uh, there's a lot of research that we have been doing at ICR. Some of it uh, is, well, I'm going to show you just two examples. Okay, Obviously, we've already mentioned the, uh, the work that Mary Schweitzer has done, how, we're fi- how they're finding original biomolecules in, in dinosaur bones, that is a powerful argument against the millions of years. Uh, that, that is a, in fact, I don't see how evolutionists really handle that. It's, it's, it's a powerful argument that those dinosaurs are, are young. And dinosaurs, for many people, are synonyms for evolution. They're symbols of evolution. And yet they're young, as we would expect from Scripture. Uh, we've got cutting-edge research that is going on at ICR. How many of you have heard it said that human DNA is 98% similar to chimpanzee DNA? Anybody hear that before? It's not true. 
And I'm so proud of the fact that my coworker Jeff Tompkins at ICR, he is a geneticist. He single-handedly destroyed that argument by doing his own independent analysis. It turns out the true similarity is at best 85%. And if you're trying to claim that humans and chimps came from a common ancestor maybe 6 million years ago, that is a huge gulf that mutations have to uh, bridge in order to turn that ancestor into chimps and then also into us. Like, it's a huge gap. Okay, it, it's, it's, but what you were told was simply not true. Uh, Tim Clary, our geologist, he is doing something that nobody has ever done before. He is constructing a gigantic three-dimensional map of the sediments uh, around the world so we can get a feel of how the flood event unfolded. He, he is doing something nobody has ever done. No geologist, creation or secular, has ever done this before because it's too much work. But he's taking data from thousands of boreholes all over the world, sticking them into this giant database so that he can get a big picture of, of seeing how the flood unfolded. And we're getting some clues to what the topography of the pre-flood world was like. And Lord willing, this, this weekend, we're going to show you a lot of other cool stuff that we've been doing at ICR. Now, I understand that there are a lot of Christians who, uh, they may be skeptical of the recent creation position, but let me just remind you of what Proverbs says. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Okay? If you're here and you're a Christian, but you're a little bit skeptical of the recent creation position, I would urge you to keep that counsel in the back of your mind as you listen to the information we pre present to you. Okay? Because you've only been getting one side of the story. There's another side, and we can make better sense of the data by taking the Bible at face value. Finally, uh, the last reason that we all ought to take Genesis literally, this is probably the most important reason, and that is because the Lord Jesus himself, the Savior, took Genesis literally. The Lord Jesus affirmed the flood of Noah. In Luke chapter 17, he describes it very matter-of-factly. He accepts it as a true historical event. But he also affirmed recent creation. There are at least three places in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus implicitly affirms a recent creation. Uh, the first uh, is in Mark chapter 10 verse 6 where he's speaking to the Pharisees about divorce and remarriage. He says that from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. He made Adam and Eve male and female not billions of years after an alleged big bang but from the beginning of the creation, within that first creation week. In Mark chapter 13, uh, he, the Lord also talks about tribulation that will come. And he says it's not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. So he's saying that there was tribulation from the beginning. Well, if you believe in evolution, if you believe in the Big Bang... When did tribulation enter the universe? Remember, only living things can experience tribulation. Okay, Hydrogen gas does not experience tribulation. Stars don't experience tribulation. Rocks don't experience tribulation. Only living things can experience tribulation. And we know from Genesis that tribulation entered the world when Adam sinned. At the beginning. Not billions of years after the beginning, but from the beginning. 
And then the Lord also talks about the prophets whose blood was shed from the foundation of the world. Okay, well, who was the first prophet who was killed? Abel. He mentions Abel by name, and we know that Abel was killed very early in earth history. Not millions or billions of years after the beginning. So the Lord Jesus took Genesis as literal, literal history. So how could we not? You know, if he, and wouldn't he know? I mean, after all, he is the creator. If anybody would know the age of the universe, he would. So why would we not take his word for it? So those are seven reasons every Christian ought to be taking Genesis literally. Um, you know, the statistics are pretty grim. Uh, that two, two-thirds of young people who grow up in conservative evangelical churches eventually leave, either before or by the time they reach college. And we're not talking about mainline denominations. These are conservative denominations. Well, how many of these young people have questions that are not, are not getting answered? Like, how do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? What about radioactive dating? Is that proven old earth? Was there a big bang? What about the ape men? How did Noah get all the animals on the ark? Where did the floodwaters come from? Where do they go? Uh, where does the ice age fit into biblical history? Where did Cain get his wife? Well, those are all questions that they have. How many of them are not getting answers? And because they're not getting answers, how many of them just really aren't sure that the Bible is God's word? Uh, how many aren't sure that the gospel is true? I mean, if you're not sure that the Bible is God's word, how can you have any confidence when that Bible tells you that Jesus is the Savior of the world. You know, this is illustrated by a, a, a letter that was read aloud on the television show, The 700 Club, back in 2012. Uh, there was a woman named Michelle who was writing in, and this is what she said. She said, I have three teenage boys, and now two of them are questioning the Bible. This scares me. They tell me if the Bible is truth, I should be able to reasonably explain the existence of dinosaurs. This is just one of many things they question. Even my husband is agreeing with them. How do I explain things to them that the Bible doesn't cover? I am so afraid that they are walking away from God. My biggest fear is not to have my children and husband next to me in God's kingdom. So you can see that for this woman, the subject of dinosaurs is a huge source of stress in her life. Uh, she's worried that her children are going to walk away from the faith because of dinosaurs. But I actually agree with Michelle's children and husband. They're actually right, because if the Bible is God's word, then yes, it should be able to explain dinosaurs. And you know what? It does. And Lord willing, we're going to see how it explains dinosaurs tomorrow. So this is the problem we've got uh, where the foundations of Christianity are being attacked. And what we're saying is that we need to go on offense. Okay, We need to start repairing the foundation, showing people that they can trust Genesis, and showing people the problems with evolution. Now, again, this is a cartoon. Okay, Those aren't literal laser cannons. We're not talking about literally vaporizing evolutionists with laser guns. Okay. But the idea is we want to just demolish their arguments. You know, Paul talks about demolishing arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And that's what we want to do. And we want Christians to be confident that they can take the Bible as written. As the Paul said, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? You know, I'm sorry to say, but for many years, Christians have had a very uncertain sound when it came to Genesis. Well, we're, you know, we're not really sure what we believe 
You know, it doesn't matter what you believe. Maybe it was literal. Maybe it wasn't. That does not inspire confidence in people. That does not sound like people who really know what they believe. And so the reason ICR exists is to provide answers to these questions, the tough questions, the questions that people think cannot be answered. That's what we do.